Uh, friends, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, who is your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for your word, which is the gospel about him. And we thank you for your word, which is written scripture that points us toward him and toward the glorious news that you have given us through him. We pray today that you'd help us to understand scripture and we pray that as we understand, you'd help us to obey. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to begin today by telling you briefly about my uh, own experience in Christian ministry. Uh, in fact, no, I'll keep that. We'll come back to that later on. Let me, let me go to... I want you in your Bibles to have Psalm 1 open. So please go to Psalm 1. Uh, actually, there was one more thing I needed to tell you before we get underway. Um, I was asked about uh, the seminar on depression, so I thought I'd just tell you a bit about what I'm going to do. Basically, uh, the seminar on depression is my own experience, uh, reflections on my own experience as a Christian uh, with depression and my interaction with Scripture. Um, I've done that talk that I'm, I will give this afternoon or that interaction in Australia, Singapore, Hong Kong and a variety of other places. Um, I think depression is a massive problem in our world. Uh, it's been a problem for people in Scripture and I think that's a good thing for you to know. It's been a problem for many Christians and many Christian leaders in history but most Christian leaders will not speak about it. And so I've chosen to do it wherever I think people would find it helpful. So that's what I'm doing. If you find it helpful, then I hope you'll come along if you think that would be helpful for you, either because you've got friends who suffer from depression or if you yourself suffer and you want a perspective from a Christian who wants to talk about it, uh, then come along and maybe that'll be helpful for you. Okay, I want you to imagine the situation. It was uh, the Second World War, end of the Second World War, and a teenage German soldier found himself in a British prisoner of war camp. And uh, the friends who surrounded him gradually began to lose their will to live. And uh, there was a chaplain, though, and he wanted to comfort this young man. And so he began distributing the scriptures, not just to him, but to others as well. And the version that he gave them was a New Testament. Perhaps you remember these versions of the Bible that had the New Testament, but right at the end, they had the book of Psalms tacked on. Gideon's Bible often used to do that. And the young man was initially unimpressed. But then he began reading. And as he began reading, he found himself captivated by the Psalms. Uh, and as he, spoke, uh, uh, he, said, he said that as he read them, he found himself in his situation and in his grief in the Psalms. And he found people thinking the same sorts of things as he did. And uh, when he read them, they brought him to God. They spoke to him of his situation and his grief. And this young man went on to become one of the most influential German theologians in the last century, um, of, in the last uh, early part of the 20th century. The Psalms are a great resource. The book of Psalms is a great book. I am so glad that I have read the Psalms so frequently 
the Psalms, and if you're Anglican churches, most Anglican churches have forgotten to do this, but it used to be Anglican tradition that you read the Psalms every Sunday. One Psalm every Sunday. The Psalms are both the prayer book and the hymn book of the church. They are God's record of what God's people have said to God. They are recount how God, God's people have struggled with God. They tell of the questions that people have about God, of their praise of God, of their pain with, of life with God, of their love of God, of their certainties of God, of their love of God, uh, of their doubts about God, of their feelings about life and of other humans, of their desires, of their doubts. And because these people are struggling with the same things as we struggle with and rejoicing in the same things that they rejoice in, then the Psalms speak to us as well. They make, us, make it possible for us to say things that we are afraid to say. You see, I think, for example, if I can just give you one example, I think that we no longer know how to lament. That is, we no longer know how to say to God, God, the life is really very bad for me. And I want you to do something about it. All our songs today in the church are all songs of glory and praise. But actually the Psalms are not only that, they're also lament. And if we don't have the Psalms, we never are able to lament. And so the words of the Psalms have come to God's people in the strangest of places. People have recalled them when they're in prison or when they're persecuted. Or the Psalms have brought them comfort and courage when they're in desperate places. Friends, let me tell you that the Psalms are the most incredibly wonderful gift of God to his people. I love the Psalms. For about 45 years, uh, actually a bit under 35 to 40 years, it has been my habit every day to read a Psalm, at least one. Um, and timeless times, I have found myself confronted comforted, set right, disturbed, and set back on the right path again by the Psalms. I have found echoes of my pain. I have been filled, I've found a voice for my praise. I have been filled with passion. I have been turned to God. I have been found words to use in my relationship with God. The writers of the New Testament, they knew the magic of the book of Psalms. The writers of the New Testament quoted them and alluded to them endlessly. The Lord Jesus himself used them on the cross to speak of what he was experiencing. The New Testament writers quote them and allude to them all the time. And that is why Paul used the, uh, told the Ephesian Christians to speak to one another. Do you remember what he said? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That is why he urged the Colossian Christians with these words, let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts to God. So I want to speak about the book of Psalms today. And I want us to look together at Psalm 1 this morning. So have, open your Bibles 
have Psalm 1 open or look at your digital media or whatever it is you use. Open your Bibles and let's look at Psalm 1 together. So first thing I want you to notice is that this is this one big book, the book of Psalms, has five books within it. Did you notice that? Turn to your Bibles to Psalm 1 and look at the little heading over it. It's often uh, not there in some versions, but it is there. It should be there. Look at the heading. It says Book 1. Now, that's not something helpfully added by Bible translators. No. Although it's not in the standard Hebrew book of the Psalms, it does go back a long, long, long way into Jewish history. It is strongly attested by Jewish literature. According to one English source, the Talmud, it says the division of the book of Psalms into five matches the the five main books of the Old Testament, foundational books, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Turn to Psalm 42 now with me. So book one starts, Psalm one. Now turn to Psalm 42. Here is the beginning of book two. Now, if you want to know the rest, you turn to Psalm 73, which is the beginning of book three. Psalm 90 is the beginning of book four. Finally, Psalm 107, the beginning of book five. Now, these are not just random collections. If you look at it, as we will a bit later on, they are sewn together in a fine tapestry. Together, they make a wonderful and intricately integrated whole. Five books of Psalms. Five books, like the five foundational books of the Torah, the Pentateuch. Five books of the Torah that capture, those first five books captured the story of God's people. These five books capture the response of God's people to God's story of what he's done with them. But there's one more thing to say before we move to look at our first psalm for today. The one thing to say is that the whole of the Psalter has two important bookends to it. Psalm 1 stands as an introduction and a heading to the whole. And Psalm 150 stands as a fitting conclusion to the whole. So with all of that introductory stuff done, let's have a look at Psalm 1. So turn to it in your Bibles. And I want you to ask this question. First thing I want you to notice is that Psalm 1 speaks to various groups of people. It talks about various approaches to life. But the most important question to ask about Psalm 1 is this question. Who is the main person in our lives? And Psalm 1 is clear. It is the Lord. Look at verse 6. It is the Lord, we're told, who watches over everything. Look at verse 2. It is the Lord who sets the agenda for humans by giving his instruction or his law. It is he who rewards and it is he who punishes. That's the first truth of this psalm. The Lord is the major, the main player in the psalm, but he's the main player in our lives. Now, let me say that this truth is often incredibly hard for us to recognize and realize. Uh, And the very first page of the Bible tells us God created humans good. But then it tells us how humans distorted how God created them. They sinned. They did not listen to his word. They did what was right in their own eyes. 
Instead of placing God as the major player in our existence, we place, our, of course, ourselves, don't we? We make ourselves the centre of our existence. We take on responsibility for ourselves. We act independently. We act as though God were not the main player in our lives, but we were. And this psalm and the whole of Scripture screams, No! No! God says to us in this psalm and the rest of Scripture, No, I made you. I own you. I gave you instructions. I will count you responsible. I began your life when I wanted to. Even when you were in your mother's womb, I crafted you. You cannot ignore me. I will bring your life to an end when I choose. You cannot ignore me. I am the major person in your life. Friends, please hear this from this psalm. God is the major person in our lives, not us. And Jesus agrees. In his early teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this clear. He talks about God who sees what is done in secret places and who rewards and who punishes and who knows our heart and what consumes it. That is what this psalm says as well. Friends, this is the truth of both parts of the Bible, both Testaments, old and new. There is a God who watches, a God who is the main player in our lives the God around whom our lives should be oriented. Now let's look at the second thing that God tells us through this psalm. If you look, you see, if you look at this psalm, you will notice that it highlights in life that there are two sorts of people. Look at verse 6. The first is the righteous person. Okay, the first is the righteous person. He, this is the only name the righteous person has in this whole psalm. But their actions are described in various places. Can you see them? In verse 1, they are those who do not, what? Walk in step with the wicked. They do not stand in the way that sinners take. They do not sit in the company of the righteous. I want to explain what is going on here, and I'll move around a bit and move away from the mic just for a moment. I, I want you to imagine that there are two people walking. They are walking along. One is right, one, one doesn't know where they're going, the other is wicked. And as they walk along, they talk. And the wicked man, wicked person, speaks a lot. And after a little while, the young, untrained person stops and he stands and starts talking and continues to listen to the wicked person. And then they sit down together. Can you see the progress that is expected here? You see, if you listen too much to the wicked, you will become like them so much that you're constantly where they are, thinking like they think, doing what they do. You see, that is not true of the righteous person. They have another focus. Can you see it in verse 4? Their delight is in the law or instruction of the Lord. They are those who meditate on it day and night. That is the very first group of people, people who shape their lives around God's revelation of himself. People who have their roots deep in God's will and God's word. Now look at verse 4. The second group of people are named, they are the wicked. Now the wicked are known by various names in this psalm. In verses 1, 4, 5 and 6 they are just simply the wicked. In verses 1 and 5 they are sinners 
in verse 1, they are mockers. And Psalm 1 tells us clearly and starkly a second truth for us. It's a very important truth from God. The second truth from God is this. In the end, there are only two sorts of people in the world. Only two sorts. There are the righteous and the wicked. There are those who are rightly related to God. That's righteous. And there are those who are not rightly related to God. That's the wicked. And friends, this is the way Jesus Christ speaks himself, isn't it? Do you remember the story in Matthew 25? He speaks of a future day of judgment when God will divide sheep and goats. Do you remember that story? It's a long one in Matthew 25. And the nations will be gathered before him and God will just separate them out, one from another. Sheep and goats. Those who are righteous, those who are not. He says, they're, they're, in the end, there are just two groups of people in the world. That, that is what will happen at the end of time. Countless other parables and teachings of Jesus and the apostles confirm this. At the judgment on the last day, God, the creator of life, will measure up all people in all time and simply divide them up. There will be one sort of person on one side and one sort of person on the other side. In the end, there are only just two. So truth number one was God is the main person in our lives. Truth number two is there's only two sorts of people living uh, and two sorts of way, means of living in this world. Let's focus on the righteous to see what they are like. Okay, verse six tells us that God watches over their way. But, but that then causes us to ask, well, what is the way of the righteous? Well, their way can be defined both negatively and positively. Negatively, it's outlined in verse one. They do not do certain things. They do not follow or walk in step with the wicked. They do not stand in the way that sinners take. They do not sit in the company of mockers. In other words, the righteous person doesn't even get started. Remember my analogy of walking? So you walk a little while, then you begin to stand, then you begin to sit. And what's being said in this psalm is, the righteous person doesn't even start on the journey with the wicked. They do not even begin to listen to their advice or counsel. They don't stand around in their ways and they don't sit down in the dwelling places of those who mock God and his ways. Rather, what do they do? Can you see it there? They listen to God's advice, instruction and ways. That's what verse 2 says. Rather than listening to the advice of the wicked, they delight in the law of God, of the Lord, that is the instruction of God. Rather than sitting in the company of those who mock God, they let God's instruction reverberate around and round in their heads and constantly mutter it to themselves. Uh, that's what it means to meditate. It's as though you've got God's thoughts, God's words in your brain and you sort of mumble them to yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean, that is, they, they go around in your existence. Um, in other words, the righteous person is a person who lives in dependence upon God's instruction. That's basically what it means. They are dependent not upon their own independent advice or other people's independent advice. No, they're, they're not like Adam and Eve, their spiritual predecessors who ignored God's advice. No, they are people who live in the advice of God. Okay. 
That's the third truth of this psalm. The righteous, well, they are those who depend upon God for advice, while the wicked are those who continue to act independently from God and trust in their own selves and their own instincts. Now, when we get to the New Testament, you'll know we, we get this developed a little bit in the New Testament. Um, you see, the New Testament tells us that God has given his word to his world. Do you remember the words? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That is God's word to us post-Christ. It is Jesus Christ. God's word is Jesus. His person, this person, Jesus, came into the world and died because of our wickedness and independence. That person died, that person, Jesus, died in our place. And in and through Jesus, the word of God, God gives his advice or instruction. And that instruction is to trust in the Lord by trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus to forgive and trusting in Jesus to make us righteous. Listen to Jesus, John 3, 36. Might write down the verse reference. You can look it up later on. John 3, 36. Listen carefully. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There are two options. Exactly as the psalmist said, you can be on one side or the other, as it were. Can you see what's being said? God's view of us is determined now not by how concentrated we are in the first five books of the Bible, but how concentrated we are in who Jesus is and in trusting in him. If we believe in Jesus, we are not condemned. If we believe in Jesus, we have accepted God's ultimate word. We have trusted in God. God now views us as righteous. So what is the modern day equivalent to never walking in step with the wicked, never standing in the way that sinners take, never sitting in the company of mockers? Well, it's refusing to listen to, tell you, to those who tell you Jesus is not important. It is refusing to let people drag you away from belief in Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's refusing to let the dominant, your dominant, the dominant force in your thoughts and ideas and philosophies to be cut loose from God and his word about Jesus Christ. We've now noticed three things. First, the most important thing to remember is to live a life before God. God is the major player in the drama of our lives. Two, we've noted that God sees two groups of people when he looks at the world. There are the righteous and the wicked. Three, we've observed that there are two orientations of these two groups. The first group orientate themselves around God and his word. And that group of people orient them, and the other group of people orient themselves around human words and counsel. Now, uh, this psalm adds another matter. It talks about the fate of each group of people. Can you see it there? I want you to look at verse 3. It's talking about the righteous and it tells you about their fate. It says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit, its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. But that's the fate of the righteous. Can you see what it's like? Uh, it's firmly planted. 
well-watered, fruitful, prosperous and secure. If I could give you a picture of this, uh, it's a picture that is uh, not uniquely Australian, but it's partly, it's drawn from Australia. Uh, at the moment, Australia, in, this, uh, in the centre of Australia, is in drought. And uh, in Australia, in the most barren parts, or not the most barren, but in um, much of farming country, uh, there is a wonderful picture that you can have of this. You'll be driving through central uh, New South Wales, for example, or central Western Australia, and uh, you'll find a, a, a little creek that is just running through barren land. And every tree imaginable lines itself up along that little creek. And I remember one picture of this once, where we were driving through a part, of, a part like this in Australia, and we saw this magnificent, huge tree, leafy, growing well. And it was growing right in the midst of that little creek bed because that was where all the water was found. And that is a picture of what it is like to be grounded in the word of God and See, see what it says there, verse 3? That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers. That's the fate of the righteous, firmly planted, fruitful, prosperous, secure. But look at the fate of the wicked, verses 4 and 5. The wicked are not firmly planted. They're not well watered. They will not be fruitful. Rather, what are they like? Well, they're like the centre of New South Wales and Australia at the moment. Dry, earth, dust, and the wind just blowing it away. That's what, that's what it's like. Do not have your, your life grounded in God and his word. And uh, what... What the psalmist says is they will not stand in the judgment, these people. They will not be in the assembly or company of the righteous. They will not be secure and safe like the righteous. Uh, can you hear what the psalm is urging? It's saying, notice the fate and the future of the righteous and the wicked and choose where you will be. Be in the company of the righteous. For they will be blessed in God's future day of judgment and intensely happen happy and people of immense good fortune. Can you hear the third truth of the psalm? Uh, the fourth truth is that God oversees the future of our lives. So fourth truth, God oversees the future of our lives. You see, Jesus knows this and he makes it true in his teaching. He talks of gates that lead to life and gates that lead to death. He talks of eternal life as a state of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he talks of judgment by God on the last day. But Jesus assures us that those who have accepted his word will not be washed away on the last day. They will stand. They'll be prosperous. In your Bible, I want you to flip in your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 24. Or look it up in your digital media or whatever. Matthew 7, 24. And look at what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came, and the streams rose, 
and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation in the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Friends, if we've listened to the words of the psalm, we know this to be true. They're from God's Old Testament word and they are endorsed in this statement by Jesus. They'll be confirmed in the judgment on the last day. This is God's word, friends, and it can be trusted. Do not rely on contrary advice. Rely on this advice. It's from God. It's true. It's dependable. It's God's word. It can be trusted. Now, friends, if this psalm is the introduction to the Psalter, then I wonder what we've learnt about reading the rest of the psalms that follow. Well, let me suggest some things. First, we've learnt that God's instructions about life come through the Scriptures. From the New Testament, we learn that this Scripture points us toward Jesus. All of Scripture from beginning to end points us toward Jesus. And we have found that reading scripture as pointing toward Jesus will result in life. Second, we have found that meditating upon scripture is the source of life and the way to a prosperous future with God. So when we read the Psalms, we shouldn't just skim over the surface of them. We should meditate deeply on the one to whom scripture points, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And such meditation will result in life and fullness before God. But there is a third thing to learn. The third thing is that we are to be people of God's word. So I wonder if I might close with an invitation to you. Here's my invitation. I wonder if you'll join me. That is, I wonder if you will join me in reading the Psalms regularly. Why not take to reading one before you go to bed each night or when you get up in the morning or over breakfast or over lunch or over your favourite coffee in your favourite coffee place? Right? And soak the Psalms in and let them seep deep into your lives. Will you start reading a psalm a day with me? Oh, and don't get legalistic about it. If you miss one day, just pick up where you left off the next day. But reading the psalms is wonderful, friends. It'll do all of those things that God says it should do. It'll orient us toward that which matters. And you know... There'll be days when you're at your best and you'll read the Psalms and they'll speak to you and you'll find encouragement in them. And there'll be days when you're at your worst and you'll read the Psalms and God would say to you, it's okay. What you're feeling, others have felt before you. And it's okay. And everything in between will be all right. Psalms are wonderful. Oh, when you get to Psalm 119, just take it a little more slowly if you want. <laughs> Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent treasure hidden in the middle of our Bibles, this treasure of the Psalms. Father, please help us as we read them. Please help us to be shaped by you, to be directed towards your Son, and to be oriented in life. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.